Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with John Avlon about his new book, Lincoln and His Fight for Peace. John is a senior political analyst and anchor at CNN. He is an award-winning columnist and the author of three previous books, including Washington's Farewell. Prior to joining CNN, he was the editor-in-chief and managing director of The Daily Beast. He also served as the chief speechwriter for the mayor of New York during the 9-11 time period. John, welcome to That Said. Thank you. Great to be with you. So I'd like to start these interviews by asking our authors to tell us a bit about themselves, where were you raised, and the trajectory of your career. So if you could fill us in a bit, that'd be wonderful. Sure. Um, so I, I was, um, you know, born in New York, uh, the grandson of immigrants uh, from, from Ohio. Uh, my mother's family's from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, folks moved to Charleston, South Carolina when I was 14. I do think that... Um, that proximity to the immigrant experience accounts for a lot of my uh, patriotism and fixation on, on American history to the extent that like, I think a lot of immigrant families, you are taught to appreciate the country and not take it for granted. And, and, and I was very close to my grandparents. Um, uh, one of whom was born in Argentina and came to the country through Ellis Island, fought in world war II, became a surgeon. Um, was just a wonderful human being, um, just a gentle, a gentle man. And um, so I, I think that accounts for, for a lot of it. I was always drawn to American history and writing in college. I double majored in uh, you know, American literature and political science um, without a clear sense of what was going on. But I, I remember, uh, I think it was in college, walking by City Hall in New York City and thinking, God, you know, being the mayor's speechwriter, that'd be the greatest job for a young guy. And uh, lo and behold, through through a variety of circumstances, um, I ended up with that job and and did that, you know, through through my 20s, uh, which was really formative. And then I became a columnist for The New York Sun and wrote my first book, Independent Nation, and um, started my TV career when I did uh, uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart in support of that. And it's been a wild ride. But after, you know, five years as editor in chief of The Daily Beast, after beginning as a columnist there. I uh, moved over to CNN full-time where I am now. You were a speechwriter in the New York City post-9-11 era. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about that. That must have been incredibly stressful but exciting. Well, it was hugely formative for me um, in, a, in a fundamental way. I mean, I was, I was the mayor's chief speechwriter. I was 28, 27, 28. And... Um, I wrote an essay about it called The Resilient City, um, which is in a book called Empire City, which is an anthology of uh, about New York. And, um, you know, that was just a, a fundamentally formative uh, moment in time for me. And, you know, I'd been in, in, in City Hall for you know four years at that point and learned a lot about, you know, the policies that work in turning around a city and, and the way that, you know, a speechwriter can kind of combine the policy with the pros to, to make something matter. But all of a sudden on 9-11, of course, and in its aftermath, um, it was a very different thing. And I felt, you know, I think my, my family always raised me to feel a sense of obligation to the opportunities that I'd been given. And I felt an enormous sense, I think we all did on, on the team I was running at the time, enormous sense of obligation to the firefighters and police officers who'd been lost, 343 of them, to, to, to redeem something from their loss, to try to explain it. Uh, the unexplainable, the unimaginable to the city, and in some cases, the world at the time. And we seized on metaphors like the fact that St. Paul's Chapel across from Ground Zero didn't have a broken window, uh, which is I went down the next morning down to lower Manhattan to get some things out of City Hall. And um, there it was standing right across the street from the World Trade Center, but not a single window was broken. And that was the church that George Washington and other founding fathers prayed at and had the, the oldest known representation of the Great Seal of the United States. So it was just a, a deeply formative moment for me and one that will always stay with me um, and define who I am and how I see the world. Why did you decide to write this book? You know, I, um, I think there, there are two ways to approach that. I've been honored to write, you know, I wrote a book, Independent Nation, Wingnuts, about extremism in American politics, Washington's Farewell, which is about George Washington's farewell address, and then two journalism anthologies with two friends of mine. 
but all of my work as a columnist, as a journalist, as an editor-in-chief, as an anchor and analyst, but as an author, it, it is all if you had to distill the topic. It's about how we confront and overcome hyper-partisanship and polarization in defense of our democracy and how we can uh, show the strength of the center as a way of, of combating those divisive tribal forces in our politics. And after writing the Washington book, which is all about his warnings about, you know, the, the dynamics he feared could destroy our democracy, chief of which was hyperpartisanship. Lincoln was the next great figure. And I like using history to implicitly give perspective on current events. It's a reminder that we've been through much worse times as a country. It's a reminder of the power of, of moral leadership. Lincoln is defined by his empathy and his honesty and his humor and his humility. And, um, and, and I think his, his reconciling leadership uh, can, can still inspire. The, the second part of the question is, why the hell would anyone write another book about Lincoln? Right. You know, there are literally 16,000 books on Lincoln I, I found in the course of this. But I had an idea, which is to focus on Lincoln, the peacemaker, his vision of winning the peace, which is something that, you know, has come up periodically uh, in recent American history. And and I asked a bunch of Lincoln scholars if 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 anyone had done a book on this. And to my surprise, uh, somewhat to their surprise, the answer was no. Uh, but the reason is, is that he's assassinated five days after Appomattox. So he never gets a chance to implement his vision. It's his unfinished symphony. But as I show between his second inaugural address, which is 41 days before his death and his last speech um, and his comments all around that period of time, he has developed a, a fairly consistent vision of national reconciliation and reunification. What Lincoln understands is, is that if you don't win the peace, you don't really win the war. And that's particularly true in a civil war. And uh, so really distilling his, his wisdom and his leadership, the power of not just his words, but his personal example in those six weeks. And then looking at the afterlife of the idea, how that idea played forward. What happened when we followed it? What happened when we didn't? Uh, the prescription being unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace. And it culminates somewhat unexpectedly for some readers in the occupations of Germany, Japan, and the Marshall Plan. And I'll just end with this because it was the quote that, you know, books, sometimes there's a seed of an idea and it takes years to germinate, even while you're working on other ideas and other books. But years ago, I found a quote from General Lucius Clay, who's kind of an unfairly forgotten figure, um, but was a, a southern born general who oversaw the occupation of Germany. And somebody asked him, he was born three decades after the Civil War. Someone asked him, what guided your decisions? in what's now often regarded as the good occupation. And uh, he said, I tried to think what Abraham Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. And that always stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading that quote in your book. It's a terrific quote. And what struck me about this book that was so interesting, and I'd like to walk through it in different categories of storylines was how many parallels there are between today and the times about which you write. You start the introduction or part of the introduction, you say the story of how a small band of slave owning extremists was able to hijack American politics, divide the country and start a civil war might surprise you. And it was a bit surprising, but I think as a predicate for where we want to go, can you tell us about that? Because, again, there's parallels that I see for the, the period of time that we're in now. Sure. Uh, obviously, my, my desire was to make all the parallels implicit. At the very end of the book, in one page or two, I discuss, uh, bring, bring us up to the present near as I can. But you're right. So that, that section on the Confederacy is, um, uh, is part of the introduction. It's, it's sort of the third section of the introduction. But it is interesting when you go back and look at, at how the, the secessionists began as a small group of conservative populist elites who were terrified of demographic change, of the country growing. They tried to rig the system of Congress to give themselves disproportionate power. They didn't represent the vast majority of Southerners. Indeed, it was the violence of the war that, that pushed a lot of people over. And, and they were really at war with majoritarian democracy, in addition to, obviously, uh, the idea of a multiracial democracy. 
But basically, they could feel power slipping away as the nation expanded, which is why you have this fight over the fatal compromise uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, which propels Lincoln back into politics after a single term in Congress. And, and they really try to intimidate people into silence for a time. They use a tactic called aggressive defensiveness, as historian Joanne Freeman has shown. You know, there are 70 acts of violence on the floor of Congress in the run-up to the Civil War. They, they, they try everything they know how to do to set, ultimately create the psychological preconditions for civil war, which is uh, refusing to accept the legitimacy of Abraham Lincoln's election and, and believing that election results are a matter of life or death uh, for, for their way of life. They convinced themselves that they were patriots while, while trying to destroy the nation. They convinced themselves they, they were fighting for liberty when they were fighting to extend slavery. And notably, given that we still occasionally have debates over, you know, it's, you know, Confederate flag being history, not hate, you know, go back and look not just at Alexander Stevens' cornerstone speech, but Jefferson Davis's own inaugural speech. And you look at the, the, the Constitution of the Confederate States of America, and it explicitly invokes slavery and God. The U.S. Constitution does not explicitly invoke either. And it's predicated on the idea that all men are not created equal. That's very clear. Um, so it's just very, very striking, the misuse of language, the way that there was a, a real hostility towards majoritarian democracy and trying to rig the system and a, a, a fixation on, on perceived threat that they meet with the strategy of aggressive defensiveness. There's a lot of parallels today, in addition to a blood and soil identity politics, uh, which, which they extend. Yeah, and you write of them, which I thought was a great line, which said the separatists were elites posing as popularists, driven by a fear of demographic change. Yep, and, elites posing I, as populists, yep, driven by fear of demographic change. That's it. And that's what we're dealing with now. Yeah, that's it. And you write in this segment of the book that you say, really, democracy was at stake in the Civil War. Yes, slavery was at the heart of it, but... In a broader sense, when you pull back a little bit, democracy was at stake. You wrote about how European autocrats were, in your words, salivating with the dreams of conquest on the Western continent in the belief that self-government had proven itself a failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's important to take a step back. And that's what I try to do. It's, it's a long introduction, but I'm trying to sort of set the table. And a couple of things that it's easy to forget. Uh, one is there was never been a civil war on that scale before in human history. So Lincoln's facing a problem without precedent, which is one of the things that's incredibly impressive about it. You know, there's no historic figure he can draw on uh, to guide his decisions, even in the way that the founding fathers, when they're setting up the Republic, draw on the lessons of the ancient Greek and Roman republics to and, and their failures in order to try to create fail safe mechanisms. This Second thing is that the United States is the world's sole democratic republic. I mean, yeah, there are constitutional monarchies like England, but everybody is looking at the United States and saying this experiment in democracy is doomed to fail, as the founders, many of the founders feared. It can't exist in a country this scale. Maybe it's appropriate to a couple of Swiss cantons, but not this. And so this was the inevitable death throes. And this is something that Lincoln had been worried about his entire life. I mean, he's born as, this, as the founding generation is dying. In his famous Lyceum Address speech, when he's a, a young man in his late 20s, he says, as a nation of freed men, we must live for all time or die by suicide. And that's what the nation was confronting. And then, of course, there's the question of liberating four million slaves whose existence was a core contradiction to our ideals. And then there's the added issue of how do you stop the next war from igniting on the ashes of the past? Right. And it's that that, in some sense, is the heart of your proposition that you say of Lincoln that he was a man of peace in a time of war, but he was not just working on stopping the ongoing civil war, but he was thinking long-term about how to stop future civil wars from the ashes of the past. So talk a little bit about who was Abraham Lincoln, uh, a man of, as you called him, empathy, honesty, humor, and humility, and what was his ongoing work as he looked to the future once the civil war was going to end? Lincoln was, in, in some ways, the least likely of presidents, particularly for that period of time. It's instructive that 
you know, Lincoln, who's now regarded as our greatest president, was bookended by two presidents we now generally consider two of our worst, Buchanan and Johnson. He seems totally ill-equipped to be president at this particular time. He is a former one-term congressman. He is a prairie lawyer. He has no executive experience, no military experience. He's leading an upstart new political party. He's rough and he tells jokes all the time and he speaks in parables. And there's every expectation that he will fail. And he meets with an enormous amount of disrespect and derision. But he has the two essential qualities beyond phenomenal intelligence and a soulful sense to his personality. He has character, which is the single most important quality in any president. And he has the capacity to grow in office. And he does. And I make the case very clearly in the book that, you know, the question of character is, I think, ultimately rooted in, in, in fundamental aspects of people's personality, you know, which we forget. And I think the essential alloys of his personality are empathy, honesty, humor, and humility. And those inform his principles, which in turn inform his politics and his policies. And I think we sometimes forget how for a lot of people, and this is just the human dimension of American, of, of any political history or current politics. You know, I often fantasizing that, you know, politics is history in the present tense, that a lot of things are just rooted in people's personalities. And that's frankly why whenever we're picking a president or anyone for high elected office, everything should be secondary to character. Everything, because it's, it's the thing that matters most. And, and he's also, you know, he's a man who's combined opposites. I mean, it's extraordinary. The guy who leads us through the Civil War is born in the South, moves West, you know, he and North. Um, he's, he's really a bridge builder in fundamental ways. The thing that you point out about him as well, beside his character, is that his leadership style flowed from these core characteristics, his empathy and humor and stuff. And you write that Lincoln believed that the fight for peace requires the ability to imagine a future not predetermined by the pain of the past and, importantly, the leadership skills to turn that vision into reality. So Lincoln, as you just indicated, had this sort of new model of leadership, this reconciliation-oriented Leadership. So can you talk a little bit about him as leader? Because you can have all the vision in the world, but if you aren't able to turn that vision into reality, then you should be uh, academic. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Lincoln has been a lawyer and a politician as a very young man. He's leading the Whig Party in the Illinois State Legislature at a very young age. And, and, and some of his contemporaries say at the time, you know, he, he never... It was never a matter of force. He didn't club men into line. It was a matter of appealing to reason. Yeah, I'm glad you point out about that, though, because there is now a, a sort of a, a school of leadership called reconciliation-oriented leadership. But um, it basically is about, you know, non-dogmatic thinkers who are not emotionally reactive and thin-skinned and, and motivated by, by spite. And that does require imagining a future that's not predetermined by the pain of the past. It is very easy, particularly in the middle of a conflict, let alone a civil war, to, to get caught in that cycle of desire for revenge. It's the most human thing in the world. But thinking about reconciliation rather than revenge, without having that impact, a determination to win, uh, understanding that there's no substitute for victory on the battlefield or in politics. But then if you can think, be determined to win and balance that desire to win with a desire to heal after victory. That's the trick. And it's a very rare quality. I mean, Winston Churchill famously said, you know, those who make war would never make a great peace. And those who make peace could never have waged the war. Lincoln's the exception to that rule. And he really is a man of peace in a time of war. I mean, he, he, he is much more suited personally to what he never got to do, which is heal the nation. He was president for... 1,500 days, five of which were days that were not at war? Yeah, just about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, the mere fact of his election, as he said, you know, they, they, people tried to go from the ballot to the bullet. And um, 
you know, states start seceding. And and then he is assassinated five days after Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Jefferson Davis hadn't yet been captured, but the war was was functionally over. And and he gave a, a speech uh, on, on the White House lawn um, declaring and basically an end of the war, which he actually uses not characteristically. He's not triumphalist. He, he talks about his the principles that will guide his vision for for reconstruction. And um, it, it's such a tragedy as, as you know, there's newspaper clippings found in his wallet when he died, when he was killed. And one of which was an editorial from a Philadelphia paper that said, after a term of war, he's entitled to a term of peace, which he never gets to see. Yeah. We're talking now about his last speech, that, right? Mm-hmm. And in that last speech, you write about it. And you say that he says that in the present situation, it may be my duty to make some new announcements to the people of the South. I am considering and shall not fail to act when satisfied that action will be proper. So he, in that last speech, is thinking about tomorrow. Explicitly. Yeah. It's interesting. You point out at the end of the book that in an interview with Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and they were asking him to look back on Lincoln. He said essentially that things would have been a lot better had Lincoln lived. Yeah. No, that interview with Davis that I found, which is very obscure, is fascinating. You know, he's living in a, in a benefactor's mansion overlooking the Gulf of Mexico and Mississippi. And yeah, I mean, he, he acknowledges that his bitter enemy uh, in the Civil War, his opposite, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a great man, was honest. And says, as you as you point out, that, you know, the death of Abraham Lincoln was the worst thing that could have happened in the South because he had a feeling for our suffering. And he was replaced by a demagogue, which he says is the worst of all men, Andrew Johnson, who himself is a Southerner, by the way, and is, is responsible for compounding the tragedy of, of Reconstruction and losing the peace, in effect. But it's a remarkable character testimony from his one-time enemy and, and opposite uh, at the end of his life. I want to talk a little bit before we get further into the book, because you spend a good bit of time saying essentially nothing tells the story of Lincoln as well as who he was as a a human being, what his vision for the future was, than the second inaugural address. And you spend a lot of time talking about the second inaugural address, which I found to be very compelling. I found the whole book to be compelling, but I really enjoyed that part in particular. So if you would, can you tell us about the second inaugural and what it says and what Lincoln was trying to accomplish by it? Sure. I mean, the first chapter of the book is a very close uh, reading and description of the day he delivers the second inaugural. It's 701 words contrasted with 262 for the Gettysburg Address. It is acknowledged as the greatest inaugural dress of all time. It does not involve politics or policy per se. It is a uh, biblical speech, not only that it quotes the Bible um, a, a number of times. And Lincoln was not a Orthodox believer or a member of any particular denomination, but he had grown more religious over the course of his uh, presidency, in particular spurred by the death of his son, Willie. And it is a vision of the war as a shared penance for the original sin of slavery, shared both by the North and South. You know, he comes out and says, don't buy any of this nonsense. This war is about slavery. It's not about anything else. But he doesn't let the North off easy with any sense of moral superiority, because as he points out, the North has in some ways contributed uh, to slavery. It's purchased the cotton. It has purchased the rice. And God only, he believes, can determine when the end of the war will come. And and he sees all the suffering and blood, 750,000 lives lost, Americans on both sides, as penance for 250 years of slavery on the American continent. But the last paragraph, 71 words, one sentence, one paragraph, which begins with malice toward none, with charity for all, uh, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. He abruptly shifts from a very Old Testament version of of the war and God's punishing purpose to a New Testament vision of 
possible redemption rooted in kind of a radical forgiveness with moral humility and sketches out in the broadest but still deep way uh, what a just and a lasting peace could look like between ourselves and with all nations. And that is a summary of his vision of reconciliation. That's his, I think, a vision, a summary of his vision of the fight for peace. It's an incredibly moving speech where he says, essentially, let it be God's will and we'll hope for the best. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln had three indispensable conditions for peace important principles, he said, may and must not be inflexible. And th these three indispensable conditions for peace form the sort of predicate again for your view that Lincoln's peacemaking approach was that which guided Truman in the Second World War is what Wilson failed to do in yeah. the First World War. So tell us about the three indispensable conditions for peace and then his view that everything else was more or less negotiable. Well, um, he does have these three indispensable conditions, as you say, which he writes out in his own hand in negotiations with uh, Confederates during peace negotiations. And, and, and his negotiation in Hampton Roads with members of the Confederate cabinet before the end of the war, and then his uh, meeting with the uh, assistant secretary of war for the Confederacy, former Supreme Court Justice named Campbell, he writes these out. And the first two are fairly obvious. So an acceptance of federal authority. South has got to accept the, the fact of the union, the authority of the federal government. Second is an end to slavery for all time. Um, it's momentous, but it's almost unspoken at the end of the war. Uh, the, the fact of the war has removed the cause of the war, in effect. The third is not obvious, and I think a major testament to how far-seeing Lincoln is, which is a refusal to accept ceasefire before surrender. Now, why does that matter? Well, first of all, he is being offered and pressured by protesters to accept peace throughout the course of the bloody war. He's called a butcher and um, for, for letting the war go on when some people believe that peace can occur. But Lincoln is unwilling to accept peace at any price. He thinks that's too expensive, even and especially when people are saying that, you know, we can have peace. It'll just involve accepting the partition of the union or the perpetuation of slavery. Lincoln won't make that deal. Even at the end of the war, after he's reelected, when he's got all the political capital in the world, he refuses to make that deal, much to the frustration uh, of the Confederate negotiators. Why? It's because he's afraid or concerned that, that if he accepts a ceasefire before a surrender, that the North will lose the political will to follow through with an end to slavery. So uh, when he meets you know, at the end of the war, he's already passed the 13th Amendment, but needs to be ratified by the states. He intends to make that a condition of their readmittance to the Union. That is incredibly farsighted, because politically, the easy and popular thing to do would be to accept the ceasefire and then go about negotiating the terms. He's unwilling to do that. You mentioned Wilson. Why, why am I bringing Woodrow Wilson into this and the, the Marshall Plan and the, and the you know, World War II generation? Wilson is a son of the South. He lives through, as a, as a young boy, the, the Civil War and Reconstruction. He wants, he tells the Senate, uh, a peace without victory, a peace among equals. Uh, you can see the sensitivity he feels to people who lose a war and his desire not to have resentment flourish in the absence of war. What he gets wrong is that that is that third point. The Germans are allowed, you know, they get armistice before surrender. That creates the months of negotiation at, at Paris during Versailles, uh, at which point they end up with sort of the worst of all worlds, which is punishing reparations, but no mechanism for actually enforcing them. And he doesn't even get the League of Nations, which he traded a lot away for because he hadn't successfully brought Republicans on board and wouldn't negotiate when it came to ratification in the Senate. And then crucially, what you see after the Second World War with Harry Truman and George Marshall working with Arthur Vandenberg, a Republican Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee chair, is a desire to win the peace. And instead of reparations, they do the Marshall Plan. It's an investment in peace, the opposite of reparations. 
And, um, and you can see they're not only motivated and inspired by Lincoln's vision as a reconciler, but explicitly by the mistakes after Versailles from which the Second World War came. The plan for Reconstruction was hard fought between Lincoln and the radical Republicans. Mm. There, to you say there was no clarity between those two. Lincoln was a Republican, and maybe you can give us just a minute or two so people understand who the Republicans of 1860 were, who were the know-nothings and the sure. Whigs, and how did they grow out of it, so you can give us a little bit of a history lesson. But maybe we could talk a little bit about Louisiana and what it presented as an example of what Lincoln was dealing with as a leader in his presidency? Sure. So th- this, is, um, this is a deep cut, but it's really important because sometimes you hear people say uh, in the context of our politics today, uh, Lincoln was a Republican and he was fighting the Democrats and the Democrats were the slaveholders and, and thereby uh, sort of absolving them by dint of history from whatever politics or policies of the fact that the Democratic Party today disproportionately represents black voters in the full diversity of the country. The characters of the two parties have changed enormously in fundamental ways, one of which is just geographically that uh, the party of Lincoln now sees its strongest base in the states of the former Confederacy. That basically changes on a dime after the 1964 election when Lyndon Johnson, a Southern Democrat, backs civil rights and voting rights. That begins the big shift. This is not incidental. At the time, Republicans are a breakaway third party. The Whig Party is basically dying. Lincoln had been a Whig. It's a big tent party uh, that is a coalition of people who oppose the expansion of slavery. Some are abolitionists, wanted to abolish it altogether. Some are like Lincoln, who believe that all you can do is stop the expansion of slavery. It is a moderate progressive party. Its strength is predominantly, but not exclusively, in cities and in the upper Midwest in particular. And the Democrats are conservative populists. You know, we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, Lincoln draws the distinction, says, you know, the, the Democrats are for the dollar over the man. The Republicans are for both the man and the dollar. But when the two are in conflict, the man before the dollar, right? Because remember, part of the argument uh, around slavery is economic. And, and Republicans are in favor of free labor. So it, it, it character-wise, the two parties are totally different. And in the interregnum, you'd seen the rise of the first anti-immigrant nativist party, the Know Nothing Party, as they're known today. They were called the American Party then, and Lincoln notably refused to join them. They were formed, by the way, primarily in a backlash to uh, Irish immigration, and they were anti-Catholic. So it's a reminder, as I've done many times in Reality Check here at CNN, that um, you know the anti-immigrant panic tradition in America goes back, but it was originally, you know, focused in almost cut and paste terms against uh, the Irish and Catholics. That's one more reason why it's good to know your history. Um, The Italians, too, suffered a bit in that. Oh, the the Italians, I mean, Greeks, you know, Eastern European and Southern European immigrants, you know, 100 years ago, we just forget that. Uh, They weren't weren't even considered white. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, 100%. Fascinating. But that's a reasonably good segue to Louisiana. Um, so his vision of Reconstruction is, is actually very federalist. He, he, he wants to treat the states as laboratories of democracy, laboratories of Reconstruction. He wants them to feel an investment in their own Reconstruction. He does not want explicitly, he's not going to hang the traitors, you know, which is the traditional punishment for treason. He doesn't want to make martyrs, but he doesn't want the leading Confederates people who should have known better, members of Congress, Supreme Court, military, to be able to reassume their power. But he's focused on Louisiana because he knows from his brief trip there as a young man that it has, because of New Orleans, uh, a significant Creole population. It has some experience in multiracial democracy in a way that the rest of the United States, by and large, did not. And um, and also that it had been conquered since you know late 1862 and uh, by the Union, at least that downstate portion. And, and so therefore he felt that would be the best laboratory, but it ended up being a massive fight uh, between, you know, Congress and him as to who would oversee reconstruction. Um, and it was a great source of frustration, but his final speech indeed is actually disproportionately about Louisiana, weirdly enough. Uh, he said something which I thought was interesting. And one of the many 
lessons learned from your book about then to now, which was that Lincoln, in talking about the radical Republicans, saw them as overzealous and who could destabilize post-war unification. You write, and John Jay at that time said that these Republicans were holding progress hostage in the name of ideological purity. Uh, John Hay, his secretary, yeah. yes. He, uh, John Hay was the secretary who later became secretary of state for William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Hay used to call them the Jacobins, which was a reference to the French Revolution. Um, they were they were radicals. And, and Lincoln was a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries. And he had to walk that line. And he was anticipating bitter fights with the radical Republicans when it came to Reconstruction. They'd been his political allies. They disagreed on style in some cases more than substance. But Lincoln did not want to punish the Southern rank and file. When he talked to his generals, when he talked to his cabinet over and over. You hear him say, I want to give them the most liberal and honorable terms. Let them go home with their guns to shoot crow with and their horses to plow with. He wants them to return to normal life as soon as possible, which is not to say that he wanted to give the leading Confederates a pass uh, and, and offer them amnesty. He, he explicitly did not. And that's one of the many places where he and, and Andrew Johnson diverge and why the history of Reconstruction is so very different than Lincoln um, had envisioned. Lincoln believed that the lasting peace required the reintegration of the South into a common American culture, a changing of hearts and minds in order to, to do that. And you asked the question, which I'd like you to try to answer. You asked the question, can it fairly be said that Lincoln's view of human nature and people's capacity for change was underestimated and that the South quickly return to white supremacy and essentially slavery without chains very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was one of the things that surprised me in researching this book is just how quickly the South starts imposing what were known as the black codes, which you just described, you know, but by the, by the late summer and fall of 1865, you've got, you know, Confederate brigadier generals taking over as governors in, in states like Mississippi and the state legislatures passing these laws that are designed to uh, really subjugate the, the newly freed blacks functionally as fast as possible. And it's done with Andrew Johnson's acquiescence. I try to stay away from historic what ifs, right? Because it's not a particularly profitable you know, occupation. It's a fun parlor game. Um, but what I think you can clearly see is that Lincoln and Johnson's differences were not just of character, although they were dramatically of character. The Atlantic describes Andrew Johnson as being egotistic to the point of mental disease. Lincoln was not. But Johnson allows, he squanders a critical window. All of Lincoln's instincts were to combine strength with magnanimity. Johnson uh, was erratic. Johnson uh, was viciously bigoted when it came to blacks. He was, was resentful to wealthy Southerners, but he liked having them appeal personally for pardons, which he granted. He fought uh, an expansion of the Freedmen's Bureau, which is an essential organization, which Lincoln had signed into law to help bridge, um, bring slaves towards, ex-slaves towards self-sufficiency. He uh, vetoed the Civil Rights Act. He fought against voting rights for blacks viciously. So you just see that Johnson squanders this brief window within which maybe Southerners could have been corralled to create a more determined path towards a multiracial democracy. Instead, um, they do not greet Lincoln's vision of magnanimity with magnanimity. They rejoice over his death. They abuse Johnson's granting of pardons. The radical Republicans swing in reaction and bring federal troops back into the South, which compounds feelings of resentment and opposition and division. And we're in precisely the wrong place. So while I think it's, it's fair to say that Lincoln, um, the radical Republican vision is certainly more consistent with where we are as a country circa 2022, looking back that, you know, Lincoln underestimated almost inevitably the intergenerational trauma that can come from slavery that, you know, there was a window that existed that was lost, but I think Johnson deserves 
the blame for that. And I do believe that at the end of the day, that's the proof point that Johnson's path was the wrong one. And when Grant, President Grant briefly gets us back in the Lincoln path, particular, you know, signing and uh, the, the 1871 anti-KKK Act, which is now actually being used in, in, in some cases in our times, um, and beats back the KKK with the help of a Southern Attorney General, Amos T. Ackerman, who's a fascinating figure. When he briefly gets us back on the Lincoln path, you see real, real progress for, for a brief period. The thing that's interesting to me in thinking about Johnson, and I'm sure there's a clear answer to this question, but I get asked a lot, and I don't know history like you do, is why did Lincoln select Andrew Johnson to be his vice president? He was a Tennessee Democrat who didn't favor secession, but he really was known for his um, bigotry and his drunkenness and other yeah that are not very flattering. So, as I say in the book, Lincoln's worst decision is his most impactful, which is picking Andrew Johnson to be his vice president. And it is a huge, largely self-inflicted tragedy. But the reason he, he has really good reasons to pick Johnson, but they were political and personal. First of all, he knew Johnson from his one term in Congress, and he had a lot of comfort with people he'd known back in the old days. Second, Johnson, to his credit, is the only Southern senator who refuses to secede with his state. He's what's known as a war Democrat. That's an incredibly courageous and revolutionary stand, and indeed has a lot of venom for the secessionists. And he says treason must be made odious. He serves as military governor of Tennessee. He's the darling of the radical Republicans who think they found a fellow traveler. And when Lincoln is running for re-election, and in August of 1864, he is convinced he's going to lose. He writes a letter to his cabinet predicting his own defeat. Lincoln's not even running for re-election on the Republican ticket. He's running on the National Union ticket, which if you can see behind me, it's actually a reproduction of a National Union ticket ballot, the, the electors. So it's a, nas- it's a wartime fusion ticket, you know, kind of like Churchill ran on during the Second World War uh, or, or presided over. And Johnson makes sense. You know, Hannibal Hamlin had been uh, from Maine, had been Lincoln's running mate in 1860, where the divining thing was, you know, Lincoln was from the West. Illinois was West at the time, and he would balance it with the East. Well, now he wanted to show he could unite North and South. And, uh, and so it was an inspired choice. He went outside party lines. He tried to unite the nation, the National Union ticket. And actually, there were radical Republicans who, who, towards the end of Lincoln's life, were one of them, Benjamin Wade, said, you know, was actually hoping Lincoln would be assassinated because he thought Johnson would be more radical than Lincoln in, in the imposition of Reconstruction. You know, careful what you wish for. Mm. But Andrew Johnson essentially turns his back, as we talked about, on Lincoln's view of total surrender followed by magnanimity. Mm-hmm. He, Johnson really essentially capitulates to the desires of the South to resurrect itself. You wrote something, which again, I see all sorts of parallels and you say exactly correctly that they're all implicit. You don't mention the name of essentially anybody in current times. So Johnson, Lincoln's plan was no uh, leaders of the Confederacy get amnesty. They're to suffer the consequences of their decision, but the rank and file soldiers get to return home with their gun and their horse so that they can be reintegrated into society. So Lincoln said, that's my plan. But Johnson held the power of the pardon. And you wrote in the book, Johnson, susceptible to flattery and displays of personal fealty, granted over 7,000 pardons to high Confederate officials and plantation owners with more than $20,000 in property who were not supposed to be granted amnesty. So uh, it struck me, I think, huh, here's another president who's susceptible to flattery and personal fealty, who's issuing pardons. Where have we seen that? (laughs) I mean, look, as a matter of personality, Johnson and Trump are very similar figures. As a matter of personality, empathy, honesty, humor, humility, you know, Lincoln and Trump are opposites. 
And, and, you know, as Mark Twain, you know, once said, you know, history doesn't repeat, but sometimes it rhymes. And, and I think it's, it's a case of that. I mean, what really struck me is the way that Johnson just went about in such a determined way to oppose and dismantle any steps uh, towards uh, black rights and black equality. I mean, it's it, it just determined and un, unavoidable. He says, he says to the governor of Missouri, this country is for white men. By God, and as long as I'm president, it shall be governed by white men. There are still too many people who believe that to be true. The thing that was interesting about Johnson also was as the first president to suffer an impeachment, in some sense, it's he wasn't convicted. He survived by, by one, one vote. vote. But it's interesting, uh, again, in relationship to the times that we found ourselves in recently with two impeachments, that the notion of impeachment was for treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, which is sort of abuse of office by public officials. Here in Johnson's case, it was really a policy debate between him and the radical Republicans. No one accused him, am I correct, of breach of his public trust, but rather it was the fact that he was essentially vetoing all the legislation that radical Republicans were putting forth, and they just couldn't take it any longer. Yeah, it, it, look, it is more of an explicitly political punishment. It, it ends up hanging on really absurd things like, you know, a conflict he has with Edwin Stanton, who'd been Secretary of War under Lincoln, where he tries to fire Stanton, and then Stanton refuses to leave his office. And, and uh, as you say, a fundamental conflict between Republicans who controlled Congress at the time and him, president, and who controlled Reconstruction policy. Johnson, it's fair to say, was railroaded a bit. Um, but if you look at the full uh, articles of impeachment, he also is, they condemn sort of intemperate harangues and attacks on Congress and, you know, Johnson's unpresidential behavior. But it, it is, you know, it was probably appropriate that he was spared uh, by, by one vote. But his behavior is, you know, egotistic, thin-skinned, bigoted, and, uh, and really shows the cost of losing the peace, which he's just the wrong guy at the wrong time. Right. I mean, essentially... His bigotry gave rise to uh, white vigilante violence and the rise of the KKK, which brings us, you've mentioned him a bit. I'd like to talk about him a little bit in greater detail, especially his first term in office, which is the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, who takes over after Johnson. Johnson is not even nominated by his party to run for re-election. And right. Grant comes in, and we have to remember who Grant was. Grant was the the general who won the war, if you will, from the North. But he is the guy who receives Lee's surrender at Appomattox. So maybe you can start by telling us what did Lincoln tell Grant at Appomattox? And then tell us about the presidency of Grant coming on the heels of Johnson, but in his mind, remembering the words that Lincoln tells him at Appomattox. So Lincoln spends, you know, almost three of the last six weeks of his life uh, with the army right behind the front lines with Grant at City Point, Virginia, which was renamed Hopewell, Virginia, which I visited for the re research of the book. Lincoln says over and over again, he hammers home his vision of winning the peace. He's very involved in the military decisions of Grant, although he separates, you know, he, he doesn't presume to dictate to him, except to the political ends and his vision of winning a peace. And he keeps saying, give him the most liberal and honorable terms. He does that on the River Queen in a painting uh, called The Peacemakers, which hangs in the White House, where it's, it's a wonderful painting uh, with Lincoln and, and Sherman and Grant and Admiral Porter. He does it again in Petersburg uh, the day before the, or the day of the fall of, of Richmond. Um, and so Lee, Grant's famously generous terms of surrender to Lee at Appomattox are written by Grant, but they're virtually taking dictation from everything that, that Lincoln has told him, including let them go home with their, you know, have their rifles to shoot crows with and their horses to plow with, uh, some of the most generous provisions. And it was seen as a magnanimous gesture, um, unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace that set exactly the tone Lincoln was looking for. And Grant, there's every evidence, has that in mind. Uh, when he runs for president under the slogan, let us have peace, uh, 
his actions, but he's very tough. And Lincoln has warned about his great nightmare that there would be vigilante violence if, if, if the peace was not secured in effect. And, and that is what comes to pass. And there's enormous violence directed, obviously, at freed blacks, particularly for former enslaved persons who become state legislators. There's vicious attempts to intimidate them uh, through violence and aggressive defensiveness. You know, these, these sort of situations where someone would, would claim that a Republican or a, a freedman threw a punch and then there would be days of vigilante violence. So Grant backs the 18, goes to Congress personally and insists that an enforcement act be passed to help combat the KKK and then imposes the, the not only brings troops to the South to give the, you know, some muscle, but uses his Southern uh, attorney general, Amos T. Ackerman to prosecute the Klan very effectively. And you need to know about the KKK is that it's basically had three incarnations. Some would argue a fourth, but the, the KKK, the initial incarnation where it's led by former Confederate general, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and is a vigilante group throughout the South and the deep South is virtually extinguished. And then, and then comes back, you know, it's like a Hydra. It comes back in the 1920s, in a different incarnation. It comes back in the 1960s in reaction to Brown v. Board or 1960s reaction to Brown v. Board in the civil rights movement. I'd be interested as a lawyer, Michael, let me ask you a question from the tables for a second. What, what do you think of Amos T. Ackerman and what is his reputation among, among lawyers and legal scholars? Because to me, he was a fairly obscure figure and, and he is a fascinating one and so important to our history. And it seems like sort of a forgotten hero to me, but tell me where I'm wrong. Oh, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think you're right that he's forgotten and that he's a hero. And we have to remember that when Grant becomes president, it really is the first time that we have a Department of Justice. Yes. Formerly, there was, you know, there was a sort of attorneys general, if you will, but they were not empowered to act through an agency. The DOJ, the Department of Justice, is formed during the Grant administration, essentially. And Amos Ackerman is the first attorney general who has the power to deploy the forces of justice to right injustice. And as you say, he integrated grand juries. And he, through the Enforcements Act, we hear about it today, because that's the act, essentially, that Congressman Swarwell and the police use in the Trump litigation. They're saying that that act, which criminalizes people in elected office from doing their job, is what Trump did in January 6th and what Ackerman says the KKK is doing then. And so he brings 3,000 indictments in his first year in office and essentially as you say, dismantles the Klan. So I think he is a terrific example of it's a next, that's your next book, you know. The well, next book is who is Amos Ackerman and why haven't we remembered him and how did he use the enforcements and the insurrection acts to make our society a better place for us to live? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm probably a little too over overlapping, although I could maybe see a documentary on, on that one section, which is called USA versus KKK. I do think it needs to be dramatized more and better understood. I think Reconstruction, the lessons of Reconstruction are enormously relevant to our times, not least of which it's a reminder that voter suppression, voter intimidation, uh, election subversion can roll back progress, even what's written in the Constitution, you know. And, uh, and it's a very vivid time. And obviously, there are great scholars like Eric Foner who've done definitive work on it. But uh, it often gets short shrift. And I think, you know, even when, when many of us were going to school, we were still being taught sort of a, a version of Reconstruction that, uh, that demonized the people who were trying to fight for civil rights. And Eric Foner will be joining me on the podcast a little bit later. Oh, cool. Here. Well, lucky you. Well, his dad, Jack Foner, and his uncle, Mo Foner, and Phil Foner, all were family friends. My family and his family were all okay. very active in uh, civil rights and union organization back in the day. Well, I'm, I'm a great admirer of his scholarship. So tell him I, I, I tip my hat and send my regards. I, I will. We're running out of time a bit, but I think we have a little bit more. And I'd like to talk a bit about what I think is one of the most important moments in our history that are a real pivot point and that's this compromise of 1877 so you have you have 
on our timeline, we have Lincoln with his magnanimous plans for peace assassinated. Interestingly, as you point out, at his last speech, John Wilkes Booth is in the audience. And he says, essentially, this will be your last speech if you're going to give blacks the right to vote. And it turned out to be the case. So then Andrew Johnson comes in and he is dismantling Lincoln's plan for Reconstruction. Then Grant comes in and starts to resurrect Lincoln's plan for Reconstruction, although a little bit more heavy-handed than probably Lincoln would do. But maybe not. Yeah, I mean, you know, would would Lincoln have backed the Enforcement Act? I'm inclined to believe, yes, I think he would have, you know, obviously never dismantled the Freedmen's Bureau. But now we're in what ifs. Keep going. Right. So then Grant's term in office ends, and we get to 1877. And tell us about this Tilden, Rutherford B. Hayes, and then what was the compromise and what were the consequences of it? Because I think that set us on the trajectory of American history for the next century. No, no question. And, you know, and part of the challenges of writing a book like this is I try to be brisk and engaging about broad swaths of American history and um, try to distill certain data. But what you see is basically the, the wind starts to go out of the sails of Reconstruction, beginning with a depression that began with the stock market crash in 1873. Basically, when the economy gets bad, people start to lose their patience with fighting for civil rights. They, they turn inward. At the same time, you see a movement in the South called the Redeemers, which uh, Southerners who are white Democrats who are running on cutting public spending to the bone. A time when, by the way, the South needed a lot of public spending. They needed to rebuild. But basically, they defunded any organization or many organizations that allowed blacks to uh, attend, any integrated organizations, a state hospital, a state school, et cetera. So you see an unexpected route to that tradition. And then you have the election of 1876, and it's between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Tilden is actually running as an anti-corruption candidate. And uh, many people in the South believe that the Reconstruction forces are corrupt. You know, no, no one has a monopoly on virtue or vice. And, and, and um, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes is an abolitionist governor of Ohio, running as a single, for, for one term as a compromise candidate. Tilden wins the popular vote, loses the electoral vote, but there's allegations of fraud by both sides, and a number of states are out. Um, this causes a constitutional crisis, and you have a, um, a, a small group of Elder statesmen are convened, five members of the Supreme Court, five of the House, five of the Senate, slight edge to Republicans, meet at a hotel owned by a wealthy uh, African-American at the time in Washington, D.C. And that's where this corrupt bargain is set up, which basically allows Republicans to hold on to the presidency for one more term in exchange for withdrawing all federal troops in the South. The Southern Democrats say they promise they'll protect the rights and civil liberties of the freed blacks. You know, spoiler alert. They didn't. And, uh, and and one seat on the cabinet, which seems enormously cheap. Tilden, you know, loses the presidency and, uh, you know, Republicans get the White House for four more years. But Reconstruction is over. Uh, it's rolled back. And you see, you know, segregation replacing slavery for 100 years. And it's also done with you know, through the courts where you've got ex-Confederates serving on the high courts. I mean, the Crookshank decision, which you'll appreciate as a lawyer, I mean, the rolling back of civil rights acts. I mean, you know, you see uh, state constitutions like Alabama go within two years, 180,000 black voters registered in Alabama to 3,000. So it's just a systemic dismantling of hard-won black rights and of anything resembling a multiracial democracy. But it happens from 1876 and it happens over 25 years. Mm. But by the end, the brief gains that it made are basically written out of history. You write that in an interview with Ulysses S. Grant about a decade or so after Appomattox, you write, uh, Grant, saying that if we are to have another civil war, I predict the dividing line will not be Mason-Dixon, but between patriotism and intelligence on one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. Pretty um, goosebump-raising quote. It is. That quote, which I triple-checked because it it was too good, 
he does it 10 years after Appomattox at a speech in Des Moines, Iowa. And he's president. And it is so striking and so troubling because that is the most predictive thing for what we're dealing with today. And you need to say that with a degree of, of sort of moral humility. But, you know, indeed, those are when you're dealing with the big lie, which is a new form of lost cause mythology, by the way. That, those are precisely the dividing lines we're dealing with. Yeah. And you talk about how General Marshall essentially got it right from Lincoln's point of view. Unconditional surrender followed by generous terms. And they rebuilt Europe and Japan under Lincoln's model. What was interesting to me, which you write about, which I'd like you to talk about, was that General Marshall, in accepting the Nobel Prize uh, for peace for this, in reflecting on the need to study history for the purposes of achieving peace, said that he believed that education based on common facts was essential to preventing future wars. And this common facts Yep. Again, it's like, did you make that up, John Avalon? Did you make that? I, 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 I did not. I, I do not make things up. And, uh, you know, least of all Nobel Prize speeches. Uh, and indeed, there's a fascinating history of Nobel Peace Prize winners who all look back to Lincoln for inspiration. Uh, no, I, look, I, at the end of the day, I mean, this is uh, a work of applied history. You know, I hope it's popular history, but the point of applied history is to offer useful wisdom and, and to look at these parallels from the past to guide us going forward. And a reminder of the importance of winning the peace, something we haven't been so great at recently. The dangers of degenerating into these tribal politics uh, of division, because they do represent an existential threat to democracy, as we've seen. And a look to the leadership, the wise leadership, uh, and the best practices, in effect, that can guide us going forward. And you see there... Marshall is explicitly saying, you know, the importance of teaching history and applied history based on shared facts, not from a tribal or partisan point of view uh, or a regional point of view. You know, we see the importance of investing in peace, as he did uh, with Harry Truman and Arthur Vandenberg at the end of the Second World War. We see actually that formulation of unconditional surrender followed by magnanimous peace, also articulated by FDR during the war, where he does this extended riff on Appomattox at a press conference, which is sort of surreal, uh, to explain his terms. So, you know, it is a reminder for us, and I think a, a sobering one, and it's what I try to do every day at CNN and my reality checks, why we need to bring history uh, to impose perspective on our current events, that it absolutely is essential. I think it, it adds to the drama of our day to day, but I think it also is something that uh, helps make sense of the insanity of our, our current events. You know, they seem so crazy, but if you can put them in context, then you can also listen for the echoes of arguments that have been decidedly on the wrong side of history in the past. And you can try to figure out how to strike that um, wise balance. And, um, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, this book is about war and peace and the idea that they are entwined and you can't, you know, finish a, you, we need to be thinking about how to win a peace, as Lincoln understood, even as we're determined to win wars. It's a very optimistic book in the sense that I think that you think that if we get things right, we can make things better. I hope you're right. You say, and I'd like you to take us out on this and give us your you know, sort of closing argument, if you will. You write that Lincoln's plan to win the peace is his unfinished symphony. But in its existing notes, we can find an anthem that can begin to bridge our divides. So how so, John? Well, um, first of all, I think Lincoln's leadership retains the force of revelation, his commitment to reconciliation, the fact that he presided over a more divided time and presented a vision of reconciliation uh, rooted in, in magnanimity and generosity of spirit that continues to inspire people today. It is a high bar, and it's not that we're going to get another Lincoln. But my argument is that he can inspire people of a similar spirit. And those are the people who democracy depends upon, because guess what? Democracy depends upon persuasion. It depends upon, you know, empathizing with your opponents to some extent, and which, by the way, I think is something rooted in Lincoln's own legal training. Uh, and that is what we are in danger of losing when we fall into this trap of demonizing people we disagree with. And it gets incredibly difficult in times where people are talking about civil war, uh, when, when you see lies proliferating and really resonating because of these tribal identities threatened by demographic change. But Lincoln's example 
offers us something we can aspire to that can guide us. And then the idea that they're best practices from history, I think, is absolutely essential to understand. The goal is nothing resembling a utopia. There's no illusions about the perfectibility of human nature. There is only, I think, some comfort to be taken by the fact that times may change, but human nature doesn't. And therefore, we really do have the opportunity and the obligation to learn from our history and to apply those lessons, uh, recognizing what are the, the arguments and dynamics and decisions that have led us down the wrong path and what are the ones that can or have in the past led us down the right path. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's what we have. And as, as citizens of a self-governing republic, we are obligated, it seems to me, to extend those ideas and to learn our history and to feel an ongoing commitment to defend democracy, to realize that defending democracy is just as heroic as winning it in the first place, and that we can never take it for granted. And so these figures who are in the firmament of our civic religion, like Abraham Lincoln, are more important, arguably now, than, than at any recent time before, because I think we have lost a little faith. And so if you accuse me of being an optimist, you know, Lincoln is apocryphally, you know, I think this is apocryphal, unfortunately, but uh, Lincoln is is said to have said, um, uh, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. Mm. And so that's where I come down. You know, we as citizens have an obligation to form a more perfect union. It's not a destination we ever arrive at, but that is a noble goal. And the defense of democracy is worth it. The book is entitled Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It's a terrific read, as we've discussed, gives so many important lessons for the times in which we live. I Thank you, John, for joining me today. I thank you for writing this book. I look forward to watching Reality Check on CNN. And when it gets to be streaming on CNN Plus, you've got a lot to teach us. And I, I'm grateful to, for our friendship and I'm grateful for your, for your appearance here. You're, you're kind. It was a total pleasure talking to you. And I look forward to talking with you further and speaking to you down the road. Be well. Thank you, John. You too. All right. Take care. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.